July 31st, 2011, lecture discussion number 42. And um, I mentioned to some folks earlier that uh, I said 41. I was incorrect. This is lecture number 42. So obviously, if you've missed the first 41 lectures, this might seem a little bit complicated to you, but it really is not that complicated in the sense that uh, we're going through it slowly in order to get everybody on board at the same time. But it is lecture 42 on Romans 3, 19 through 25, one of the great stop signs in the Bible. Also Romans 1, 20, Ecclesiastes 3, 11, and Isaiah 57, 15. Those are the scriptures that we're addressing today. Not all of them today, but we're addressing them uh, with the topic that we have because all of them apply to this particular topic. Now... Before we begin, I need to clean up a few things from last week, from July 24th, uh, 2011, lecture discussion number 41. This is for all the people that listen to these lectures on the Internet, uh, of which, as you know, there are quite a few thousand of them now, and we don't let them vote, so there's no opportunity for them to to, uh, run us over and take all our stuff. We have them legally uh, bound. They don't know where we're at. We can keep moving. There's no way they'll find us. But anyway, for their sake, I wanted to go over this uh, because last week I I referred to a letter from Jennifer from Arizona, and she had comments on the surround theme of uh, uh, Psalm 22 and compared it to the surround theme of, uh, of Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's uh, house, and the surround theme of Judges 19, the uh, death of the uh, woman of the Levite. Uh, and she began to wonder if all those surround themes were, in fact, uh, connected, and absolutely they are. And in doing that and, and coming and discussing her question, uh, I substituted the Hebrew principle of recurrence for the Hebrew principle of double reference. So recurrence versus double reference. And that and I did that for quite a while. We'll talk about that in just a second. These are two Hebrew principles that um um, and again, I apparently went back and forth quite a bit before I caught myself. So I've got to fix that right now. Psalm 22 is, in my opinion, the foremost example of the Hebrew principle of double reference in all of the Scripture. Okay, That's why Jesus Christ quotes it from the cross. It is one of his seven sayings of Christ from the cross. You might know it as 22.1 Psalms, or Psalms 22.1, excuse me, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, you know immediately that it doesn't refer to Christ when he says that, don't you? Because it says, My God, my God. What does he always say? He always says, my father, my father, because he's the only one that can say that. What do we say? We say, our father. He says, my, we say, our. Why does he say, my father? Because he's one with the father. He is God himself. He wouldn't be saying, myself, myself. So that is clearly a double reference, or the Hebrew principle of double reference. And what that means is that double reference defined, if you will, with respect to prophetic prophecies, which is, I'm sorry, prophetic, uh, prophetic passages. Wow, struggling again today. I, uh, I knew that the reason I did this is because I didn't have enough medicine. So I, was str- I struggled all last week. I confused all kinds of things. We'll get to that. So I thought I, thought I would have better medicine this week in order to, 
to deal with my dementia, which I can't seem to stop. It's not an advertising, it's necessary. You'd think the Coca-Cola company would send me something, though. I've signed up for things. And Lori will tell you, I signed up for free Coca-Cola stuff. They just sent me lots of emails by the multi-hundred thousands. No, we have to have secrets from them. They do ask me. They send me lots of letters. What medicine is it that you're talking about? Or how sick are you? What, what, what they, we know I had one gentleman send a letter. I don't know if Dave got this one, but uh, he said, when I first started listening to Pastor Chronister, I, I thought he was loony. And... Yeah, did you get that one? Yeah, that made me laugh, and uh, it was terrific, uh, terrific comments. And then as he stuck with it, uh, he realized that uh, uh, I was I was not completely loony. But uh, anyway, it's wonderful, and sometime I'll, I'll find it and read it to you, uh, a gentleman. I don't remember where he's from now, but we get quite a few of those. Okay, yes, and they don't know what my medicine is other than it has some Coca-Cola reference, and that's all they know, and they ask, and they're worried about me. And you can help us here if you're listening by the Internet. And again, as I always say, um, send pizza. Okay. By double reference, what is meant by that? With respect to prophetic prophecies. I'm sorry. I can't even say it. (sighs) Prophecy passages. There we go. It's a fact. It is true. That a passage or block of scripture that is prophecy is speaking of two persons or a person and a group or two different events that are separated by a long period of time. What I mean by that is, it will take Zechariah, for example. Let me make sure I get this correct so I don't. Zechariah 9 and 10. Okay? Chapter 9, verse 9 and 10. It's the first, it's, it's such an example. Verse 9 is Christ's first coming. The first 9 is talking about Jesus Christ's first coming. Verse 10 is talking about Jesus Christ's second coming. They are separated by how many years? 2,000 years almost. We hope it's sooner than that. So I have, I have a reference to his first coming, his first advent, a reference to his second advent separated by a vast amount of time. That's what's happening in Psalm 22. When you see, my God, my God, why have I forsaken you? Or why have you forsaken me? First thing you have to ask is, who said it? Who's he mean? Is he talking about himself? I don't believe he is. I believe he's talking about the nation of Israel. It's a prophecy. And it's an end times prophecy. Some would say, no, it's a uh, uh, 70 A.D. prophecy. But in any event, it is a prophecy about a group or a person, two events, two different people separated by a vast amount of time. Psalm 22 does that. Isaiah 11 does that. Isaiah 7 does that. And, of course, Zechariah 9 and 10. You'll find it all throughout the prophecy passages. Now, recurrence. So you have to know that. You have to know. Listen. As I'm reading this verse, that verse and this verse right underneath it could be attributed to different people, different events, different nations. It could be a person in a nation separated by vast amounts of time. That is the Hebrew principle of double reference. So studying prophecy isn't easy. 
You can't assume things with it. You have to know that principle is how the Hebrews write things. Now, recurrence, and who wrote the Old Testament primarily, except for Nebuchadnezzar? The Jews did, Jewish prophets. Recurrence is the recording, of, and they're Hebrews. And they think like Hebrews. They don't think like us. You have to understand how they write things, why God used them to write it the way he did. Recurrence is the recording of events followed by a second recording of the same event. And usually the second recording gives you a lot more information. That's primarily where in the Bible? Number one place where I have recurrence. Genesis, that's right. So I'll read something in Genesis, and then you'll think that you have a chronological order. You don't. What you have is recurrence. It'll explain things to you, right? It'll explain A and B and C. You'll find out about how things were made, what the order might have been, and then it'll do, it'll do it all over again. All it's doing is adding more detail. And you have to feather what you now read back into what you read in the beginning. You can't make it completely um, completely uh, chronological. It's not. It's the Hebrew um, principle of recurrence. The recording of events followed by a second recording of the same event but giving more information. That's all it is. Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And understanding the Hebrew principles of double reference and recurrence, uh, that's going to aid you as you go through Scripture, especially if you're a student, as you go through uh, all of the Scriptures. You're going to be tremendously aided, and you will avoid these indefensible positions that are all over the church today, the contemporary church, with respect to Christ's godhood during his crucifixion. We have, I was reading, watching, I can't say that I read it, I was watching a commentator on television not too long ago point out something that was written by the, by the, uh, uh, the Nazi German, uh, the Nazi Germany's propaganda arm. They wrote a letter saying that Christ when he died on the cross, was a crying, weak baby. And that, by the way, is very popular in the church today because they do not understand double reference and they do not understand his Godhood and they do not understand what he is really saying, what those seven sayings on the cross are. He went to his death like a coward. That's what that document said. And I listened to that and I went, well... That's really common in the church today. If you find yourself saying anything that has Christ with fear in him at his crucifixion, if you have him afraid, fear is what? Fear is sin. It's, it's not knowing. You're afraid of the unknown. You're afraid of death. You're afraid of something. You don't know something. Christ is who? He's God in the flesh. He's omniscient God. He's omnipotent. He can't possibly be afraid of anything. If you have him afraid, you've put sin in him, you've destroyed his deity. It is the most common thing that happens every Ishtar, right? Okay, Easter. Same word. So I made that. I got recurrence and double reference mixed up last week, and I needed to fix that. And I kept saying Max Bohr, apparently. My wife tells me everything I've done wrong. At the end of the of the sermon, mostly it has to do with uh, how I'm articulate my hair because I'm really good at that. Or you know, mark on my hands and then I'll do this and things like that. She finds discouraging. She thinks that you hold her accountable for this, and and, and you should. You should. She has authority. 
So, but I guess I kept saying Max Bohr, apparently, uh, which is a combination, I suppose, of Max Planck and Niels Bohr. And again, I have no excuse other than uh, uh, lack of pre-lecture medicine, and as you can see, I'm on that. Okay, back to Romans 3.19, Romans 1.20, and Ecclesiastes 3.11. And we should reread a few, a couple of these, because uh, they, they play a very important part. The one thing that encouraged me last week is a few of you, as I'm going through uh, what is a very difficult lecture on quantum physics and quantum motion and quantum theory, you began to see it show up in Scripture, and you began to understand why these Scriptures uh, were read prior. So let's read Romans 1.20 again, so that you get this. It's another one of these great Scriptures um, that uh, you have to know are there in the book of Romans. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. That's the obvious question. What's an invisible attribute? How do you see one? For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood. What's the obvious question? How do you understand an invisible attribute? Being understood by the things that are made. You look at the things that are made and then you will, be, you will see his invisible attribute. Even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. Now, I said recently, you could put that in. You could put Christ right there. Let me put this, put it to you this way. Let me reread that. Because although they knew Jesus Christ is God, they did not glorify Jesus Christ as God. That's commentary on the, on the, uh, on the uh, contemporary church right there. Because they didn't, they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Okay, let me emphasize the things that are made. I've got to erase everything I have on the board. If you have any questions about recurrence or double reference or Psalm 22 uh, or any of those issues, uh, come on up after, this, uh, after the lecture and uh, we'll discuss that. The things that are made, things that are made. Now, just kind of look at that. Oops, I didn't make a very good E. The things that are made. You've got to emphasize that, because what's the inverse implication? Do you know what I mean by that? If I have things that are made, then what's the inverse? I obviously have Something that isn't made. And I use the word something. Because I had no other word to put there. I have things that are made, and then I have the unmade. Oops. What? What is the things that are made, and what is the unmade? How much unmade do I have? And that gets you, by the way, to what? What did I do with my copy? I drop it on the floor. There it. You see where Edgar Andrews is now? Who made God? He defines that. He answers that. How does he answer it? Right here. I have things that are made, and I have unmade. 
What is the difference? Now, Ecclesiastes 3.11. Let's go there. Ecclesiastes 3 is one of the most... uh, one of the most butchered, uh, chapter 3, one of the most butchered chapters in all the Bible, unfortunately. He has made everything proper in its time. So you just learned something. Again, we said this last week. He's made something. He made time. He made everything in its time. Also, He has put eternity in their hearts, or immortality, if you will, except that no one can find out the work that God does from beginning to end. That's an incredible verse. But let me just take, he has made everything, and he made it proper in its time. Everything in time. So let me do this a little better than how I did it. Thing. He has made all the things, and he put them somewhere. Where did he put them? He put them in time. So there was, as you remember, there is a void zero and a void one. Void one has time in it. Void zero is eternity. Everything in time. He made everything. He made time. He put everything inside of time. Now all we need is a definition of everything or the things that are made. And unfortunately, as I said, many supposed teachers of Scripture, they err greatly at Ecclesiastes 3.11. Okay. Now, also from last Sunday, I got a wonderful question from the class up here in the front row. Oh, did Misty go home already? Is she in the nursery? Is, is Misty in the nursery? Okay. I need to know. I need to know who's in the nursery at all times. In case she's skipping class. Because if she's skipping class, what'd she get? No. She, she gets a beating first and then the F. That's right. But I got a wonderful question. You were hoping just for the F, is that right? Yeah, then you'll go past her because last week she got an A, didn't she? But I got a, I got a wonderful question from the class, and I didn't know remember if it was from Joel or from Misty, and who uh, asked essentially, and I'm paraphrasing maybe, and if I'm wrong about it being Joel or Misty's question, that's still okay because it's a great question, and it's in a new form now this week, and so I just changed it from Joel or Misty's great question to um, to my great question. Thank you for laughing. Anyway, perhaps it went. Something like this. What is the value of quantum mechanics, philosophy, classical physics, mathematics, biology, uh, to take a few of them, to the student of Scripture, to the church? What's the value of it? How do I apply it to me? Why do I need to know it? And last Sunday I answered that too quickly. I had no choice, actually, because I overloaded the CD as it was. But I thought I'd take a little more time with this today. Because it's a very important question. I want you to first understand that true science is relevatory of God. It's what it is. The true God. Romans 1.20. Remember? It teaches us what God is like. Studying gravity, for example, will teach you about God. Studying light will teach you about God. Studying anything. That is something that he made. Well, my famous, my favorite scientist of all time, George Washington Carver, who asked the profound question. Uh, he, he wanted to learn about the deep mysteries of God. 
and God gave him the peanut. And out of the peanut, he made gasoline and he made all kinds of things. Extraordinary. The man might have been the greatest intellect of the last 500 years. Certainly one of the giants of all time. And he, he approached what he was given knowing that it was going to teach him about God. If you ever want to study uh, a theologian scientist, it's George Washington Carver. And it's a, almost a shame. Oh, it is a shame. It's a tragedy that we don't know who he is. And we intentionally don't know who he is because he is a man who believed that Jesus Christ was the Savior God of the earth. So he can't put one of those guys in the textbooks anymore. But he understood that true science is relevatory of the true God. And science has a relationship to law. That's the other thing. Remember, we've talked about the ubiquity of law or the universalism of law. Law is everywhere. It doesn't matter where I am on the earth. It doesn't matter where I am in the universe. The law is always the same. The law is always the law. And there's one law. There's a whole law. In Romans 3.19, the law stops every mouth. Remember? It's therefore incumbent for the believers in Jesus Christ to search out how it is that the law, all of the law, the entirety of the law, the totality of the law, renders all of the world guilty before God. Romans 3.19. Now, science, at its essence, its natural path, will lead the student or the scientist towards someplace every single time. Where will it lead them? If you're going to study law, what I mean by law, um, gravity, physics, natural law, scientific law, human law, moral law, you're going to study, it's all one law. It's all the same. You're studying different, if you will, you're looking at the same elephant. One of you've got the tail, one of you've got the tusk, one of you've got the, the leg, but it, all law is one. And science, every time you study law, it doesn't matter what law you, you study, you're going to go back to the same place. Where are you going to go? You're going to go back to Genesis. You're going to go back to Genesis 3, 17 and 19. What's that? Genesis 3, 17 to 19. What is it? You can do this. Yell out, you'll get a bigger piece of cake. There's a reward system here. What is it? What's it going to do? What's it say? What's that about? That is the curse, isn't it? All my pens are dying. The curse of the earth. Okay, let's get rid of these. Notice I said curse of the earth. I did not say the curse of man, did I? Is man cursed? No, the snake was cursed, the earth is cursed. Satan is cursed, the earth is cursed. Man was not cursed. That's good news, by the way. If you're not cursed, what's that mean? Yeah, there's hope. And that is not an accident in Scripture. It's the curse on the earth. So all science, by the way, will lead you back there at some point. For example, um, it, it, well, let me go a little bit further. The curse of the earth is death and its decay and its entropy. And entropy is 
thermodynamics. You're studying thermodynamics as soon as you begin to study the decay and the death that is on this earth. And the conflict, the, the, the conflict between the free will sin of the federal head of mankind, Adam, and the universalism of God's law, that is Genesis 3, 17, 19. That is the consequences of that sin. That is the consequences that cause the curse of the earth. As an example, if you study medical biological sciences, what are you going to be preoccupied with? Death. You're going to be focused on disease and death and aging and deformity and despair. And all of those are Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Studying science, studying the law, teaches of the curse of sin, of guilt before God, which is what? You're going to study and you're going to learn about guilt before God because you're studying sin, you're studying the curse. You're right back to Romans 3.19, right? That's where you are. That's where we are. That's why it's one of the great stop signs in Romans. We spend a lot of time here. And we must, as a church, we must, as a people, we've got to understand all of that. We've got to be the source of truth of Jesus Christ. We can't make the mistake and say that he was afraid of his own shadow. He didn't know something and he died as a coward on the cross. We can't say that, even though almost every church I've ever attended has said that. Drives me nuts. I get up and throw chairs at them. It's led to a long criminal record. No, I'm kidding. It's not true. It's a very short... No, I'm kidding about that, too. I have to be careful because those kinds of jokes do get me letters now. We knew, we knew there was something wrong with you. Now they're right about that. But the church must be a source, and I'm going to make it applicational here. You, me, us, We've got to be the source of the truth of Jesus Christ. We must be the place of answers. We must be a church of wisdom and understanding. Hebrews 5.12, Hebrews 5 and 6 say the same thing. Said, so use your mind. You can reason things out. You're supposed to reason things out. You're not supposed to just sit there like some small bird and be stuffed full of food every day. You have to figure it out on your own. He doesn't want you to be the one in the class that can't tie your shoes or feed yourself. You have to be a teacher. Hebrews 5.12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, and that is the purpose. God intends us to be equipped to go into the world and teach the unsaved. And we should care about that. You should care about your own salvation. But as soon as you've got your own salvation given to you as a free gift, the grace of God, what should you do? You should be thankful. And then what should you do? You should glorify God. How do you do it? You go out and you teach somebody. And that makes us just like Him. That makes us just like His heart. Okay, where are we? That's always an appropriate question here at beautiful downtown. Downtown, more medicine. People ask me, do you drink the whole Diet Coke during the lecture? Yes, I do, the whole. Hence the backup system. A little more kick to it. I used to tell people I drink a Diet Coke, and they'd say, why? And I'd say, well, for the aluminum poisoning. You can see this is the real. This has got a red top. 
That has lots of cool stuff in it there. It's got sugar. Everybody loves sugar, hence the cake. Okay, where are we? Always an appropriate question here at Cliffside Community Chapel. What I have been doing is slowly and carefully putting boxes uh, on top of one another. Little boxes, stacking them up. What's that remind you of? Yes, kindergarten with blocks. That's what I've been doing. I've been doing it slowly and, and putting them in order, stacking these boxes. And the first box, of course, was who? The first box I wanted you to have was Max Planck and Planck's constant, okay? Uh, which is uh, designated by H. Uh, 6.662 times 10 to the negative 34th, I think. Check me on that. Might be 33rd joule seconds. Okay, that sounds like very complicated stuff, and it is very complicated stuff. But you can do it, on t- and you need to do it. And I'll keep trying to beat it into you, and you will do it. I made a comment earlier to Cindy and Ken. I was watching a lecture by a gentleman on this exact topic who has a great heart for trying to get this back into the church where it once was, where it belongs today. It's died out in the church. We have given up on it because why? You can't make any money doing this. Churches have fallen into the ditch of trying to make money. Okay? So he was urging urging everybody, do what you can. Get it out there. But Max Planck started all of this, if you will, in 1900s, early, or 1900 exactly. He uh, solved ultraviolet catastrophe, black body radiation. Why is it harder for an object exposed to heat to emit an ultraviolet photon? He knew something was wrong with classical Newtonian physics, and he figured out that energy is transferred by pulses, if you will, or quanta, or hence quantum mechanics. After he figured that out, along came Albert Einstein, right? And Einstein figured out, did I spell it right? E before I, I never know for sure. Yes, I did good. Albert Einstein came along with the photoelectric effect, uh, and he began to recognize that Planck's quantum theory would apply to the photoelectric effect. And he, he solved the mystery of why we did not have intensity of light uh, in a relationship with intensity our speed of the photons emitted. And so he also decided that we had a wave-particle duality of light, which was very, very important. And then came de Broglie, Louis de Broglie. And Louis de Broglie figured out that Einstein was correct. There is a wave-particle duality in light, but there's also a wave-particle duality in all matter. And that was huge, because that got us into diffraction. And then Niels Bohr comes along, and he builds on top of the others, and he figures out the atomic model using quantum theory. So that's how it went. Quantum theory started with Planck. Einstein solved the photoelectric effect with it. The Broglie came along and said, all matter, all things that are made have wave-particle duality. In other words, they're both a thing and a wave. They're both... Stuff and things, you, me, everything that is made has two forms, if you will. And you immediately, I hope, put that to your soul, spirit, and your physical body. Everything has wave-particle duality. They're beginning to prove something. They're beginning to prove with quantum physics, substance dualism, that the spirit and the soul exists. And it is of a different substance than the physical body. And they knew it. 
Bohr comes along and he says the atomic structure models of Rutherford are incorrect, but what is called the solar system model. He used quantum mechanics to figure out what the real atomic structure of the real atomic system was. So there we go. Planck, Einstein builds on Planck, De Broglie builds on Einstein, Bohr builds on Einstein and Planck. And then we have Heisenberg. And Heisenberg figured out, I can't write Heisenberg. He figured out the implications of wave-particle duality in all things, and that that, that caused uh, what's called the uncertainty principle. We can't know everything that God has done beginning to end. We can't know. That, of course, as you remember, is Ecclesiastes 3.11. So that's what I've been doing the last few lectures, stacking boxes. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle with regard to momentum and location and energy and time. So I got five boxes stacked one on top of another that begin to explain the microscopic world. And I threw in Erwin Schrodinger and George Berkeley and determinism and physical reality and Schrodinger's equation. And then very subtly, I added a couple of pretty bold statements, didn't I? Some of you caught them last week. One of you came up. I like to say, call them pretty, pretty, or pretty bold talk for a one-eyed fat man. And people say you you have two eyes. They never they never argue with the fat man part, and that's kind of a shame. Uh, actually, I have four or five eyes if you look at my, and if you add both of them together, I got one eye. So. Maybe you should see me try to hit a softball now. I have no idea where it's going. I fully understand the Heisenberg uncertainty principle at a macroscopic level now, instead of a microscopic level. We'll get to that in a minute. Pretty bold statements I made last week. I equated quantum uncertainty principle with something. What did I equate it with? I just slipped it in really fast. Most of you didn't hear me. I said, if there is an uncertainty principle, that has a relationship If it's true that there is an uncertainty principle, and there is, by the way, it has been proven principle. There is an uncertainty principle. Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is no longer in dispute. We have done all kinds of wonderful scientific accomplishments based on quantum theory, and we're still doing them. It works. There is an uncertainty principle. If there is an uncertainty principle, and there is, I said to you last week that that has a relationship in Scripture to free will. And back you go to Genesis 2, where Adam makes a free will decision to sin, right? After Eve has already sinned. And then he makes another free will decision after he has fallen, not to go to the second tree. So he makes a free will decision before he sinned, and then he makes a free will decision after he sinned. That bothers a lot of people, by the way. The hyper-Calvinists do not like me saying that. But they don't argue with me anymore either. So free will comes into, into play, and I find it in quantum mechanics. And then I said that entanglement, which is where we're going to get to when we talk about Einstein and Bohr. Einstein looked at entanglement and it freaked him out. He called it spooky. I said entanglement is... Did I say... Did I do this last? I keep... I say it a lot. I don't remember when I say it. 
principle of entanglement. That was in your reading assignment. By the way, you're supposed to read chapters, uh, started out chapter 9, then chapter 10, then chapter 2, and now chapter 3 in your supplemental text. But I said entanglement, uh, and Edgar Andrews calls it uh, toast, right? Buttered toast. Did you read that? One guy's sitting over here, one guy's over here. They're both making toast at the same time. Were you in the nursery, Misty? You are without excuse and guilty before all who are here, Romans 3.19 and 20. Okay. (laughs) Um, If you remember, Edgar Andrews talked about if I had Steve over here making toast and Kathy making toast, and every time the toast popped up, it, it went out of the toaster or they fell out of their hands, simultaneously, and when Steve dropped his toast, the butter side was always down, and when Kathy dropped hers, the butter was always up. So Kathy's happy, and Steve is kicking things. But then the next time Steve comes out with his bread, drops out of his hand, and it lands butter up, and then Kathy's would land butter down. That is entanglement. It's with regard to uh, the spin of microscopic particles, But there is an entanglement. Something that happens to one particle automatically happens to another. And there is a a principle here. I said quantum uncertainty principle uh, was attached to free will in Scripture, and the entanglement is attached to substance dualism. And it's also entanglement is attached to the design of your Bible. Your Bible is entangled. It is woven together. What happens over here happens over here. It is so intricately woven together. It's called the principle of complementarity. Can you say that all at once? Complementarity. It's not a mistake. The physics principle of complementarity is in Scripture. Entanglement is in Scripture. The uncertainty principle is in Scripture. And it's something I repeat almost every Sunday. The New Testament and the Old Testament have complements to one another. You've heard me say it for years. If you cannot find the complement to the Old Testament uh, passage in the New Testament, then you are interpreting it incorrectly. Complementarity. Now, to be fair, I'm stacking up the boxes pretty fast, and I'm hardly opening them. I'm just going fast, just outlining them, fully aware that that we're going to have to devote more time to this, and that you're going to have to read chapters 9, 10, 2, and 3 of Edgar Andrews' Who Made God supplemental textbook. I repeat that for the people on the Internet. And yes, I know it gives you a headache. I know it does. I know this is hard. I know it hurts your head, and you're frustrated, and you're throwing your book at, at each other. And you don't understand it. Uh, but I told Ken and Cindy earlier before the lecture, the payoff is great. It is great. Over the next three to four weeks, I promise you, the payoff is great. Okay? So just stick with it. I, I'll keep repeating it. I will make you do Schrodinger's uh, uh, equation. I will make you figure out Planck's constant. You will hate every minute of it. Payoff is great. I talked to, I have a very good friend that is dying, General Winfield Scott. Ben and, uh, I'm sorry, Bill and Bonnie came from a funeral, didn't you? 
The payoff is great. You have to be able to explain death. You're going to run into it every day. Your dog's going to die. Your neighbor's going to die. Your parents are going to die. Heaven forbid one of your children are going to die. The payoff is great. And when you can explain things like this, I promise you God sends you the despairing. So, Albert Einstein and Niels Bohr. Here we go. Two giants of physics. They began to debate. And both of them are deeply philosophical men. They both recognize the implications of quantum theory. Let me put it a different way. They both recognize the theological implications. They both want to know if entanglement is true, and it is, and uncertainty principle is true, and it is, and quantum theory is true, and it is, and the microscopic world is designed in the way that it is, what is the meaning of that? What is the meaning of quantum theory? What does it mean? What is God telling us about the physical reality? That's what they asked, because we're all attached to the physical reality. And they began to figure out there was something really spooky about what we thought was the physical reality. And now we're back to George Berkeley. He understood it. I know what quantum mechanics is teaching us about the physical reality. And you need to know too. You are supposed to not be physically minded. You're supposed to be what? Spiritually minded. Why does the Bible say that to you? Because the Bible is written by the very one who designed the physical reality. And he knows what it is. And the quantum physicists know what it is. What is it? It's empty space. You're in love with empty space. And I know it. What, you hear me say it all the time. The supernatural, metaphysical, religious, theological implications of subatomic diameter. Anyway, Einstein was philosophically disposed to determinism. I don't have time to put this on the board for you, each and every word, just to get you to hear them. In other words, what he meant by that is the future is completely determined by the present. Isaac Newton's theory of motion, probably the classical physics theory that's the best example. If you know the mass of something, if you know the mass, okay, and you know the location, and you know the direction it's going towards uh, Kathy, who's not paying attention. I'm kidding. I know you're paying attention, but just think about all the people on the Internet that now think you weren't. (laughs) <laughs> she'll catch it you should see her play short stuff okay if you know the mass you know the momentum you know the direction you know the location of the object you can determine using Newton's physical classical physics um, theory you can determine the future result that's called determinism in other words if I know what the rock is I know how fast I'm going to throw it I know what direction I'm going to throw it I can predict where it will hit right that is determinism I can predict the future based on the uh, the present that was Einstein that's probably you Neil Bohr said no you can't Einstein, determinism, bore uncertainty. 
Bohr believed that Heisenberg's uncertainty principle was foundation to, foundational to quantum theory, and quantum theory provides probabilities. It says the best you can do is know the probability of something. You cannot know for certain anything, Ecclesiastes 3.11. You cannot know from beginning to the end how God has done something. You can predict, and quantum theory is all about probabilities, and Einstein was all about determinism. Einstein wanted to know. And if the uncertainty principle is defeated or it's shown to be untrue, quantum theory is left in tatters. And this is the debate between Einstein and Niel Bohr. And Einstein, though a founder of quantum theory, believes a theory of everything. Back to who made God, right? You see him constantly repeat a theory of everything. The scientists, physicists are all looking for a theory that explains everything. Einstein believed... Even though he founded quantum theory, one of the founders, he believed a theory of everything should completely explain every individual event, not just give a general tendency. In other words, I just can't have a probability. I I can't have just some idea what's going to happen based on probabilities. I've got to be able to determine exactly what was going to happen. That's determinism versus the uncertainty principle. And determinism is in direct conflict with the uncertainty principle. And Einstein will not abandon determinism. He won't. And Bohr will not abandon the uncertainty principle. And Einstein believes there's a, a missing piece, an inconsistency in quantum theory. And he sets out to find it. And the debate begins. And it went on for quite a few years, but more what's called the Solvay Conferences, 1927-1930. They, they, not just restricted to those, but that's where most of the fighting took place between Einstein and Bohr. Einstein, now remember those boxes. All of this stuff got proven. And by the way, you're still being, you're using things today that work on the basis of quantum theory being correct. Yeah, he's holding up his phone back there. Einstein starts out with his famous, oft-quoted, often-quoted, God does not play dice with the universe. You know, I'm sure you're all familiar with that, and if you're not, you need to be. In response to Neil Bohr's, who said, we can't know anything for certain. There is no certainty. And Einstein says, God does not play dice with the universe. Essentially saying there is no uncertainty. We can know the universe functions. We can figure this out. We can determine it. And note immediately the conflicts uh, Einstein has not with Neil Bohr. He's not arguing with Neil Bohr anymore. Who's he arguing with? Oh, yeah. He's arguing with one of God's guys, though, more specifically. He's arguing with Solomon. Solomon in Ecclesiastes says uncertainty principle. And Solomon was given his wisdom by God. He asked for wisdom and he got wisdom. And if you ever study the man that is Solomon, what he was able to do and what he knew will blow your mind. People came from thousands of miles away, Queen of Sheba the most example, to find out what he knew. He knew things that no one else has ever known. And Einstein is arguing with Solomon. Ecclesiastes 3.11, right? Anyway, Einstein says... God does not play dice with the universe. And Bohr responds to Einstein with his equally famous quote. He says, Einstein, stop telling God what to do. 
And Bohr is the leader of the Copenhagen School of Quantum Mechanics. And he teaches that Einstein's determinism must be deserted. It must be forsaken. And anyway, realize that this is a debate on the microscopic realm, on electrons and photons versus the macroscopic realm, which is us. That's large objects, people and plants and rocks and trees and mountains, etc., and both the microscopic realm and the macroscopic realm are Romans 1.20, which we read. They are the things that are made. Now, I put that on the board again. Things that are made. I have a microscopic realm, and it is filled with things. And I have a macroscopic realm, and it is filled with things that are made of the microscopic realm. Right? That's how it works. They are things that are made. And that frankly solves the debate rather quickly. Had either Bohr or Einstein considered Romans 1.20, but they didn't. We'll get to that soon enough. Okay, now, just a few more background elements. And then we can get to one debate. Can he do it? Only if he drinks more medicine. Classical physics, Newtonian physics describes the macroscopic realm. You'll know it mostly by cause and effect. Quantum physics describes the microscopic realm. Uncertainty, entanglement, cause and effect versus uncertainty and entanglement. The rules of the macroscopic world do not match, do not match the rules of the microscopic. They are not matching. They're almost completely different. That stunned the scientific world in 1900. It still stuns the scientific world. The principle of, of complementarity is Bohr's way of explaining this. Bohr's way of explaining wave-particle duality. The Bible, the biblical principle of com- complementarity, is God's way of uniting the Old Testament with the New Testament. Complementarity explains the soul-spirit body. It, su- it explains substance dualism. It explains qualia, or what's called self-awareness. It explains cognition, the difference between self-awareness and cognition. Okay? You got that? I went over that really fast. I'll go back in a second. The measurement of a quantum particle is not passive. When I measure what speed a quantum particle, a photon or an electron, what speed it's moving at, when I measure it, that's not passive. What I mean by that is a measurement of a quantum particle is an intervention. When I try to measure it, I affect it and it responds to me. It's an interaction between the particle and the measurement apparatus, right? And the measurer or the observer. If I even observe a quantum particle, I even observe a photon, I even watch it, I have affected it. It's called the observer effect, as you know. Where are we now? We're back to George Berkeley's position on perception and reality. I'll help the visitors. George Berkeley said there's no physical reality. Physical reality doesn't exist. You take a beginning college philosophy class, right, Jack? First thing the philosophy teacher will tell you, There is no physical reality. The interaction goes both ways. When I observe the particle, it's affected. It responds. And the detector device is affected. And it responds. It's very important to always remember that. It's a simplistic way to do it, but I'll do it this way. And I'm sorry to the musicians. I'm going to run a little long again. i got no choice. i got water. 
I want to measure the temperature of the water. What do I do? I put in a thermometer. There's my hand, right? Isn't he? It looks like a foot. I know. Okay, and I put the thermometer in, right? What have I done to the water? I've changed the temperature of it. I've changed the, the volume. I've changed my hand transmit radiation, heat, radiated heat, right? I cannot measure things without affecting it. That's the best way to look at it. Okay. And somebody's calling me to tell me to stop. Please make him stop. I get that phone call every Sunday. I used to have a lady whose son would turn to his mother and say, Mom, make him stop. He was my favorite. He's now an attorney. I, I hope to see him someday again. Anyway, Einstein proposes a series of hypothetical puzzles to Bohr. They're what's called thought experiments. There's theoretical physicists and there are practical physicists. The theoretical physicists are the ones that sit around and thinks that think about things. Neil Bohr was a thinker like that. So was Einstein. And he proposed a, hypo- a hypothetical puzzle, a thought experiment to Bohr. And so Einstein is constantly attacking uncertainty principle and Bohr is constantly defending it. And this goes on, like I said, for a few years. Einstein retreats, but he never surrenders. And the whole point of this, where they begin to to argue was right at De Broglie's uh, single slit diffraction. So let me do this as fast as I can, as best I can. This is their first argument. You have to decide who was right, De Broglie or Einstein. I will help you out. Who was right? De Broglie. But they're using De Broglie's diffraction principle because they know there's wave-particle duality. And look, I know you don't understand everything I'm saying. That's okay. It's okay. What will happen over the course of the next month? I'll get you there. I will. You'll make it. All of you will make it. Every single one. And if you bring a new person next week, what will I do to them? That's right. Torture them. Just like you. And they will make it too because... This is very, this is just, I don't know what else to say. It's so important. I fire a photon, one photon, boom. Uh, This is the, I'm gonna, I wanna show, like there's more than one. I'm firing one photon at a single slit in a barrier. Now, De Broglie said, because everything has wave particle uh, duality, I have deflection, I'm sorry, diffraction. And diffraction is going to make it do this like it's a like it's a wave. It's going to go out like this. And we don't know where it's going. It could go here, 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 and here. Waves have they have we can't tell. We have uncertainty about waves. And particles act like waves. Again, it's called wave particle duality. That's just the way it is. You need, we'll, we'll keep going over it, but that's what happens. Now, Einstein said, okay. Okay, Heisenberg, uh, I'm sorry, okay, Neil Bohr. I'm going to make it possible for this barrier to move. So it's going to move back and forth. Okay, it's going to move this way, or it could move the other way. Okay? And I'm going to tell, so it's free moving. And if that photon doesn't go straight through, let's say that photon hits like this, bang. It goes, we don't know where it's going to go, but it's going to hit like that. Einstein actually thought he would know where it was going to go, but we'll just, I'll show you that just so you know. What's going to happen to the wall? It's free moving. The photon hit it. What's going to happen to it? 
It's going to move. It's going to recoil, right? Okay, this is called resultance and equilibrance. Can you remember that? Resultance, equilibrance. Here, I'll help you remember it. Equilibrance. I have two cars, and they're going along. One car is going like this. Okay, and they hit bang right there. Okay, there's a collision. This car is probably going to go this way. Where's that car going to go? Probably going to go off this way, right? That is the resultant of that. Does that make sense? A collision, I have a resultant. Now, if I hit straight on, another car right here. I'm really a good artist, aren't I? Bang, and they hit pow, straight on to where both of them stop and don't move. That's an equilibrium. Resultants and equilibrium. So I fire a photon at my movable barrier, and it hits it, and it moves it down, and of course that causes this one to go down with it, and the slit moves down to here, let's say. Okay? Einstein said, if I have a free-moving barrier... If the particle is deflected as it passes through the slit, the collision uh, and the particle, the collision of the barrier and the particle result in a recoil, and I will have a resultant or equilibrant, and I'll see the, I'll be able to see this, I'll be able to measure this bar barrier moving. If it moves down or to the right, then I'll know that. If it moves up to the left, I'll know that. If it moves down to the right, then the particle will go to the left, which I'm showing you on the board. And so, if I can see how the barrier moves, I can work out exactly what the particle deflection was as it passed through the slit. All I have to do is measure how much the barrier moved. As soon as I know the movement of the barrier, I can figure out the deflection of the particle, right? It's basic math. And if I can account for the uh, effect of the slit in the, uh, on the particle, or the inverse, could have gone this way. So, if I can tell what that slit did by hitting that slit... If I can account for that, it's no longer random. And I can know where the particle is going. And especially if I make the slit really, really, really small. There's my barrier. I can make that slit really, really small. I can make it hit that slit every time, almost. I can make the uncertainty in the size of the slit really, really small. And if I do that, then I'll know where that particle is going every time. And if I can know where that particle is going based on the recoil, based on measuring that recoil and determining that deflection, and I can then therefore figure out where that guy is going every single time, then I have defeated the uncertainty principle and I have determined where that's going and I can know. That's Einstein's position. Heisenberg is defeated. And if Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is defeated, quantum mechanics is not 100% right. And Bohr responded. He went home and thought about it. And he said, Einstein made a mistake. Now, consider that for a second. I'm smarter than Einstein. That's essentially what Bohr does. And this goes on for years. And Bohr always wins. What's Einstein's flaw? He's made a mistake. I gave you the solution to it today. 
Okay? The mistake is, is that I have an uncertainty about the particle with regard to location and momentum. All things are underneath the uncertainty principle. What else is underneath the uncertainty principle? All the things that are made are subject to the uncertainty principle. What else is on the board? The movable slit. I am uncertain about the momentum and the location. See, that's the purpose of the slit, is so that I can define the location. I got it in the, in the, I got, I got the location of the particle in here. How do I know it's in there? Because it deflected the movable barrier. And then I can measure the deflection and I can tell what direction it went off and I can know. I know where it went, I know where it hit, and I know where it's going. That's what Einstein said. But there's a problem, Borg said. You don't know. This is also, this is a movable barrier. And I don't know its location. And I don't know its momentum. And when that photon hits, what did it do? It changed its direction and it changed its momentum and it changed its location. And I don't know that. The movable barrier has its own location and momentum, and the uncertainty of the side-to-side momentum must be very, very small. And to measure the recoil accurately, we often, he said Einstein is cheating. He neglects to apply the uncertainty principle to the movable barrier. And Einstein is defeated, and quantum mechanics is saved. And notice how it is saved. Now the musicians can come up. Notice how it's saved. How is it saved? It's saved by the very fact that uncertainty is applied to everything that is made. Solomon was right. Romans is right. Einstein is arguing against Solomon and the Apostle Paul and is losing. And they all know it. I want you to recognize this, so I'll repeat it again. I kind of skipped it. But uh, it's very, very important. I want you to recognize that whoever designed the microscopic world designed this Bible. They are designed identically the same. People ask me all the time, how can you tell that this is God's Word? I can tell it is God's word because Christ is on every page of the Old Testament in person, in type. And he is in the, the complement to that or the uh, complementarity of that is in the New Testament. They are entangled just like the physical world is entangled. Whoever designed this book using many authors that didn't know each other, but they all entangled what they wrote with the other one and they complement each other. There's complementarity. The principle, the physics principle of entanglement, uncertainty, complementarity, they're identical. Whoever, whoever designed the world designed the book. They're the same guy. The same creator, the same author. The author of the Bible and the creator of the universe are the same person. That is the implications of the uncertainty principle, complementarity, and entanglement.
And if that's the case, then you are immortal. You have a soul. You have a spirit. You have a mind. You are two parts, two substances. You live forever, no matter what. You can't change it. The difference is your destiny. Either either you accept his plan of salvation or you reject it, but you're immortal either way. It's where you go that matters. Do you give him the right to rule over you? He's the creator of all things. All things. That's really important. Things. You are a thing. I am a thing. The barrier is the thing. The photon is a, a thing. Niels Bohr is a thing. Einstein is a thing. God is not. He is the unmade one. Let's rise and be dismissed.